Gabor Gavarich was our, our coach. He was a Yugoslavian coach. And all of us kind of had some background in carpentry or carpet laying and different stuff like this. And uh, Gabor Gavarich used to know, know how to lay carpet. So the players could earn more money before this tournament began. We used to go down there and we even laid down the indoor-outdoor carpet in the Tower Palace so that we were ready to play on it. So for a week before we got to practice on it, we had the opportunity to go down there, earn some extra money and help lay the carpet in the cow palace before we played on it. So if there was some kinks in the carpet, it was our fault, nobody else's. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's do this. How are you, folks? It's uh, Tim Hanlon, and uh, it is uh, Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Welcome back. If uh, you've uh, returned uh, for yet another scintillating episode, we uh, thank you for coming back. And if it's your first time here, uh, well, let's uh, hope we can delight you uh, for the first time. And uh, we appreciate you somehow figuring out how to find us. Uh, Today, we are uh, back on the sport of soccer uh, as we are wont to do, and uh, we are yet again uh, joined by a National Soccer Hall of Famer. Uh, Paul Child is our guest and uh, a legend in uh, in the North American Soccer League, the major indoor soccer league. Uh, yes, and even a spell in the American Soccer League for a little uh, cup of coffee, as well as the first time we've talked about it, the CISL, the Continental Indoor Soccer League from the 1990s. Uh, Paul Child has... Uh, uh, been there, done that uh, during the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s uh, in the sport of professional soccer in the United States. Even a, a couple of games with the U.S. national team, uh, while not even being a U.S. citizen. We'll get into that story. Uh, and among many others with our guest, Paul Child, he of uh, places like the Atlanta Chiefs, uh, both versions. Uh, the San Jose Earthquakes, where he was a breakout star. Uh, the Pittsburgh spirit of the uh, MISL. Uh, and a number of other places. Uh, you know, Paul is a, a legend on a, on a number of different fronts, uh, you know, was the number five leading scorer in the North American Soccer League uh, back in the day. Uh, and um, just, uh, you know, a prolific goal scorer all around uh, uh, stellar guy and uh, has lots of great stories from his various stops in both indoor and outdoor soccer and his Hall of Fame career. Uh, we'll get into that in a couple of seconds with uh, our guest, Paul Child, coming up uh, in just a moment. Uh, uh, but first, of course, we need to promotionally remind you that uh, Audible is our uh, friend and our sponsor, and audiobooks is what Audible does and probably better than anybody else out there on the planet. And uh, we encourage you, of course, to uh, give Audible uh, a try at uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, by going to that link, you will be able to enjoy a free audiobook download and a free month's uh, worth of the Audible audiobook service. 180,000 plus titles uh, to choose from. And, and there's just literally hundreds of titles that uh, seem to be popping up uh, on the Audible service uh, every every week. And uh, I dare you to find, a, a you know, I dare you to not be able to find uh, a title that will interest you uh, and your earbuds. Again, it's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's where you're going to get your free 30-day trial of the Audible audiobook service. And 
most importantly, a free audiobook download for you to listen to uh, to completion. And um, you can cancel at any time. We thank Audible for their sponsorship of this show, and we thank you for giving them a try as well. You know how much I love audiobooks, and uh, here's a great way and a great excuse uh, to get some for yourself. Uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Uh, thanks for giving it a try. Okay, we have uh, dispensed with our promotional messaging, so let's move right on to our chat with Paul Child, live and exclusive from Pittsburgh, PA, here on The Big Show. So as you may know, uh, our little podcast, we're about six months old now. We're kind of, you know, we're delving into teams and leagues and the various stories and stuff that uh, frankly don't exist anymore. And there's obviously no sport that uh, is probably better uh, uh, at uh, delving into those things than the sport of soccer, especially in the United States. Uh, And I think perhaps uh, your career, uh, your playing career, coaching career uh, in American soccer is probably uh, a good uh, indication, frankly, of the um, uh, the the winding road, I guess, of professional soccer uh, here in the United States, especially in the seventies and eighties. Um, oh, de- yeah, definitely. Yes. So, well, I guess maybe a good place to start would be kind of how did you even get involved in the American soccer scene at all? You were obviously uh, a uh, a budding uh, star and player uh, in England pr- before getting here. Uh, maybe you can give us uh, a little bit of background as to how you got into soccer and then stumbled into the United States uh, of all places to pursue your soccer career. Well, what happened to him? I think it was, uh, I was playing, I was signed as a uh, 13 year old uh, player by Aston Villa, which was a uh, first division team at the time in England. And, um, uh, you know, as a young kid playing up, playing soccer, you know, that was a uh, a fantastic honor for me. And uh, obviously, uh, jump right into signing with that professional club because, you know, you obviously think you the, you never know what's going to happen and you hope you can make it to the big time. And um, I uh, I went along with that team and played in their third team, reserve team, and got a couple of little starts in the first, first team. Um, while I was playing there, uh, my coach, who was Vic Crow, who came over here in the 60s um, gave me an opportunity to go to Atlanta, Georgia and play uh, with the Atlanta Chiefs and uh, in the off-season. So I would come over here for the summer. The season was ended in England and play for four months and then go back to England. And uh, as I say, I came to Atlanta and... uh, in the NASL at that time. And actually there was only eight teams in the league at that time. So um, I got the opportunity to play against uh, a lot, a lot of different players, a lot of different nationalities. And that was the idea of the coaches to send us to the United States to get some kind of, you know, um, experience playing against different nationalities. And uh, we had them here, you know, German, Yugoslavian, Spanish, uh, Italian, every nationality. So it was a great experience and learning process for me. So that's what I came the first year to do, and um, and then got the second uh, second opportunity to come again in the second year. And um, at that time, I was I was uh, getting close to 19 years old, and 
in England, they were telling me that uh, you know I was I was getting a little bit too old, and they would give me the opportunity to come to the United States and um, and sign with the Atlanta uh, Atlanta team and uh, and stay here with the option that if I ever went back to England, they would get the first option on me as a player. So um, I did that, and uh, I came over. Uh, with the opportunity of playing uh, in Atlanta and playing indoor soccer, which they invented kind of in in the uh, in the Atlanta area, where we kind of started playing uh, indoor soccer and outdoor soccer, and got the opportunity to play year round. So that's kind of like where I got going when I first came to the United States, and when I got here, um, kind of enjoyed it, and then. All of a sudden, uh, something that never happens in England, uh, the team kind of folded. Uh, and um, I didn't really know what that was about. I was 19 years old and, and didn't really know it was getting that strange that a team can just fold and there's no franchise anymore. So I headed back to England and figured that uh, I would go back there and try and get on with a club, uh, Aston Villa or another professional club, when I went back, but um, when I got back to England, uh, the North American Soccer League um, kind of like were rebuilding, and uh, I got an opportunity to come to the San Jose Earthquakes. And uh, Milan Mandrik, who was a Yugoslavian owner, uh, gave me that opportunity and uh, kept uh, bugging me while I was living back in England with my family um, to come back to the United States. And got to be honest with you, kind of was very hesitant, you know, because I just didn't know where the game was going at that time. You know, there's a league, there isn't a league, the the teams are folding, they move to different areas and um, this kind of thing. So uh, I think it it took about a month or so before I was living with my in-laws and uh, that kind of helped me make my mind up to get back to the the United States and um, join the San Jose Earthquakes, it's, which I did in uh, 1974. All right. Well, before um, before we get to the San Jose story, which is is clearly seminal in your career because it was, it was a huge uh, uh, uptick both for the league and for you at, at that point. But I, I want to get back just for a second to uh, you're, you're playing with Villa. Um, and uh, you've got the opportunity to take a loan for the summer and do this summer soccer thing with Atlanta in 72. And then coming back, I guess, as a full time player with the then renamed Apollos uh, in, yeah, in, in 73. Um, w- w- what was your expectation about what American soccer was at that time, even before you got here? And maybe you could give our audience a bit of a sense of what it was kind of slugging it out in 1972 and 73, right? The the league itself, as you probably you learned, you know, had literally been on life support, you know, just a couple of years earlier down to five teams and was kind of trying to build its way back up. I, I can't imagine that you felt the most comfortable about just sort of jumping in or maybe it was naivete because you were so young. I think that's what it was, Tim, to be honest with you. I was so young and, and just thought that it was a great opportunity. I think what it, what the the when I first came to Atlanta and started playing in the US was um I just force you know, I foreseen a, a great opportunity. I just thought that the 
the game would be would grow, and I thought that this game would be a lot bigger than uh, uh, it's taken such a long time. But um, I thought it would get to get together within the next eight or ten years, and I thought that uh, I could be a part of that too. So um, I think you know when I first came, I I I. I kind of was very hesitant and, and didn't really know, very naive and didn't know what was going on. But after that first year, I thought that um, the potential was here and I thought the game was going to really grow at some stage and uh, it actually did. But, uh, you know, it it was kind of like a, um, a uh, I don't know how you would say it, kind of like taking a chance, a big chance and, and just saying, I think it's going to make it. I want to be a part of it, and hopefully, I can, you know, start at the beginning and and grow with this game in the United States because we were doing a lot of clinics, a lot of soccer. There was a lot of kids playing the game. It just wasn't that, you know, uh, that popular as a professional sport at that time, and we were starting to get recognition as the uh, NASL started growing. And uh, I just thought I could be a part of that and 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 grow with it, you know, and um, have that opportunity again because uh, the second year that I came here with the Apollos, uh, that was the year that I kind of um, came as a full time player and um, and really, uh, you know, then that was the time that uh, I thought the game was going to really take off, and within four or five or ten years, it would be, you know, a really big sport in this country. And it um, it just it just has taken a lot longer, you know, and uh, it uh, it finally got here and, and it's still growing. But um, I think that uh, I just wanted to be a part of that and it was a great opportunity for me. And also kind of like um, rejuvenation for my career because um, I left England uh, at 19 years old because they were telling me at the club that uh, I was getting too old and that, that, you know, they didn't think there was an opportunity for me to get into the first team, but you were welcome to go to to the United States. So I think what it was, I kind of like hit the bottom of the barrel when they told me that and got this opportunity to come to the States and thought that I can change that around. And, um, Actually, lucky enough that I had a lot of great things happen to me and got to play with some great players and uh, change that around. So it was kind of like uh, the never give up and and get back to the get that get to the United States and grow with the game that was uh, starting to get more and more popular in this country. You know. Well, yeah, and obviously it was playing time, and you uh, started to uh, show some prowess around the goal area, right? Of scoring. I guess 16 goals in, in two seasons with Atlanta. But maybe let's get on to uh, to San Jose. You mentioned Milan Madrick, um and still with us. And frankly, somebody I would love to, uh, if he's uh, ready, uh, willing, and able uh, to chat, because obviously a, 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 a legendary figure in the earliest of days of soccer in this country. But uh, maybe you can kind of describe a little bit more about how San Jose came into your life. And, and with all due respect, in 1974, uh, a uh, part of a, a number of teams that were added to a quickly now expanding North American Soccer League. And the San Jose Earthquakes really hit it out of the gate from uh, from moment one in 1974, including your arrival, right? Yes, it did. I mean, uh, there was really not much going on in San Jose, to be honest with you. That, that area was just um, 
really uh, growing and there was not much uh, at all happening in regards to a sports franchise or a team in that area. Obviously, there was a, a San Francisco and Oakland, but nothing in San Jose, which was at the end of the bay, you know. And uh, uh, this opportunity came along where Milan Mandrick, uh, who was the owner of the, the team, who was uh, actually originally from Yugoslavia, and uh, had a love for the game like you wouldn't believe and um, uh, had a great interest in making it happen and, and did very well in the uh, um, computer system uh, uh, Silicon Valley and made a lot of money at it. So obviously he was willing to spend a lot of money and make San Jose um, a great franchise. And uh, when we first, when I first got there, uh, it took a lot of persuading for me to come back to the States because, as I say, it was kind of like, uh, you know, I'm not going to be there here or, or, you know, in San Jose for one year, two years or six months. You never really knew. And uh, and I think what was um, uh, crazy with that, that he, he kept calling me and bugging me to get there because it was a, a brand new franchise. Um they were they wanted to start out of the gate with um some great players and and some uh hard working players more than uh, big name players and um, um that was my opportunity and uh I took it Milan Mandrick talked me into coming to the San Jose area and as I say the the town was kind of just developing and growing and um we kind of uh we had a had a Great chemistry with the team. The team was more of a uh, hard-working group of guys that were very good soccer players, but never quite made it. And then this was the opportunity in the community to just um, we we were drawing fantastic crowds at Spartan Stadium of nineteen thousand. The stadium held nineteen thousand, and uh, every game it was a packed house, and you would go out on the field. Um, feeling that, you know, I, well, I did, I know I did, and I know most of my fellow teammates did, uh, get out there and we had to win this game. The people paid money for us to to see us and uh, we got to send them home happy. And uh, we just worked very, very hard and had a great chemistry in that uh, team and organization where we just started growing uh, tremendously. And uh, another big factor was a, uh, general manager called Dick Berg, who sure. had some fantastic and crazy ideas of how to promote the game, which I'd never seen before. Most of the other players hadn't, you know, Tim, and, uh, um, you know, came out with a, with a crazy George, which I think you've had on your show, and um, uh, a guy that, like, um, just uh, got everybody wound up and ready to go before games and during the games and made it a, a, a fantastic night out and an exciting uh, sport to come watch. And uh, the game just uh, took off in in the San Jose area, as I say, being one of the first professional franchises, sports franchises in that area. It was a great, um, a great thing for me and most of the players that I played with there. And um, it just took off and uh, it's still going strong today. If I remember correctly, uh, I, I don't know if it was that that specific season or 75 or certainly a number of those seasons, uh, the uh, 
the field, and this is before FIFA sort of cracked down and tried to standardize what the field looks like around the world. But if I remember correctly, was painted in in various colors, including the uh, the earthquake colors of uh, I guess it was sort of this uh, 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 sort of dark red and, and black. And I think there was a an earthquake uh, uh, ball uh, logo in the middle. Do you remember any of that, or maybe even sliding or skidding in some of that? I used to come off the field, Tim, with most of that stuff stuck all over my uniform. You know what I mean? It was. It was all over your legs and everything because um, it was, again, this was a Dick, Dick Bird uh, trademark of coming up with various um, uh, gimmicks and different uh, uh, things for the, for the game and the fans that uh, just shocked everybody or was a, a new, new wave at that time. And, um, yeah, you're correctly right. The, the penalty area was dark red. The lines were in black. Um, I think they had to go through a lot of hula uh, to just try and get that to happen because, like you say, FIFA didn't want that. And the the North American Soccer League kind of were trying to go by their rules but did change their rules a little bit with the 35-yard line offside and different stuff like that. So I think it was, you know, it was kind of like a um, bit of a shock to the soccer world when you see uh, the field... Uh, painted the way it was, but um, boy, did it create, create a lot of uh, publicity and um, a lot of uh, washing for the uh, the equipment guys because most of the uniforms were covered in all that stuff. And uh, <laughs> I always remember going back into the locker room at halftime and trying to wash a lot of that paint there. You'd slid in the in the penalty box and and stuff like this. But yeah, that was a, a, a kind of a a crazy time, but um, uh, what a great uh, publicity for the for the club. Well, look, that wasn't the only publicity, right? Because you know, oh, let's no. let's be let's be honest. Uh, your 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 first year there, you led the league in scoring, and you had uh, 15 goals and six assists, um, and uh, you know made the All Star team. Obviously, you made it uh, the year before in, in Atlanta too. But you were clearly the star of the team from se- in '74, and they. They, they, I believe they featured you quite prominently in, in various uh, forms of publicity that year and, and, and onward, right? Oh, they did, Tim. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I say, you know, when I first got there, um, obviously I was trying to trying to adapt to this was California, not Atlanta, Georgia, you know what I mean? So um, it was a little bit, you know, very much different. And um, uh, as soon as I arrived, I remember I never spent uh, too many days when we weren't practicing not going out to a um a Tijuana's club to speak with Dick Berg uh going to all kinds of different um uh sports banquets uh uh soccer um uh youth youth uh you know uh, award giving things at that um that was a that was a, a big shock to me because I'd never really done that before coming from England, you know, and this was like a, a big part of the the PR of getting out there and talking, uh, you know, in front of a big crowd that I'd never been used to. I enjoyed playing in front of a crowd, but not really uh, speaking to, you know, uh, two or 300 people uh, in a banquet and, uh, and Dick Berg took, uh, or, or, you know, traveled with me most of the time and, and we went to every uh, sporting banquet, every Kiwanis, every 
Boy Scout meets in every training session, like from youth clubs to, you know, little league baseball things even where, you know, we were promoting the game of soccer and you felt kind of like you're just preaching the word of soccer and uh, someday it would catch on. And uh, looking back now, it definitely worked for us, you know, but uh, we were out there 24-7 and, uh, you know, uh, getting out in the community. And it wasn't just me. It was every player on the team as well, you know, but obviously I was lucky enough to be the guy that got the, scored a lot of goals. So I got a lot of headlines and um, never forgot that, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that with the players, without the players around me. So, uh, we we really all got on well together and and just worked hard in the community as well as on the field uh, to just promote the team the way it should be promoted and it uh, and it obviously worked you know. Well, so I mean that's a, that's a theme we've heard uh, again and again. I mean we've had uh, Kyle Rook Jr. on this show, we've had Bobby Moffat on this show, and they those two in particular uh, were uh, uh, deep in their remembering uh, their remembrances of of that part of the game it was proselytizing. It was almost like preaching, if you will, a grassroots, right? And, and, and in this country it needed it because, you know, the, the sport of soccer was still, you know, barely on, on the radar, certainly on the professional level, but uh, you know, even on the youth level, it was still, it was starting, but you know, it was, uh, it, it was really kindling at that point, hardly a, a, a conflagration like it is today. Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, guys like Bobby Moffitt and Carl Rowe Jr., you know, they were out there in their communities doing exactly the same thing we were, you know, in San Jose. And, uh, and but that's what was fantastic, you know, to see start seeing the teams coming in and the and the and the league starting to grow from, you know, eight teams in the league up to twenty four teams at one time and uh some of the um great players that started to come over into this, uh, into the United States and start playing. And uh, for me, you know, getting a great opportunity to, to play against players that I only, uh, you know, dreamt of uh, uh, playing with or playing against at, at any time, you know. And uh, I used to, you know, idolize a lot of the players that were here and then all of a sudden got an opportunity to play against them and uh, with some of them. So, um it was just a, it was just a, a, a real uh, opportunity to to develop the game and 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 help the game grow. And uh, I think a, not just myself, but a lot of a lot of European players and even American players did a lot to make that happen. And uh, and we're starting to see the benefits of it uh, starting to come through a little bit now. You know, with the MLS and uh, and, and the USL and NASL, the leagues have finally got to where they are more established and they're staying around and we're starting to add more and more teams to the league, you know. All right. So describe to me, uh, before we sort of uh, get out of your San Jose uh, experience here, um, there's um, uh, the interesting thing happened after your first outdoor season, right? And before the 75 outdoor season was this uh, indoor tournament of the uh, North American soccer, the, basically their first ever uh, true indoor season. And um, there's a really interesting book. I don't know if you have a copy of it, but it's it's long out of print. But uh, I, I will see if I can find a copy if you don't have it. It's called Soccer Fever by a guy named Richard Little. 
a year with the San Jose Earthquakes. It really it talks about the entire 1975 season with the earthquakes. And not only are you all over that book, right? And pictures and everything. It's pretty interesting. Um, but I'm fascinated by uh, it starts pretty much with the the indoor season of 1975. And I don't know how much you recollect of this, but, um, you know, and obviously it's, it, indoor will be a bigger part of your your career as we talk about it a little bit later. But I look at some of those pictures uh, of those games at the Cow Palace. And I don't know if you remember that, but I look at the goals and how uh, short they were, right? I mean, we know what the MISL's goals looked like. They were much bigger and more, I guess, uh, uh, sized properly. But these were sort of very low and narrow. And uh, maybe you can describe sort of, if you can remember, what, what the Cow Palace was like, what, what indoor soccer was like. I suspect it was a new feeling and enterprise for everybody involved, including yourself. Uh, but you were really good at it too, right? You were, you were, you led the the, the league and the team with scoring in that regard too. I'm really curious as to what the indoor game was like uh, in '75 uh, in your mind, if you can remember. Oh, it was uh, it was a fantastic time in my life, Tim. Uh, uh, I actually I loved the indoor game because there's nothing better than when you took a shot at the goal and the ball would come back to you or you use the walls as, as you know, as a teammate and, and you play one-twos off the walls and around goalkeepers and get shots. And I got a second, a third, a fourth opportunity. And uh, that was the main thing for me. It was The ball was never out of bounds, so I had a chance to, to get on the end of a lot of these uh, ricochets or rebounds off the wall and uh, put them in the net. I, I, got, I have some great memories from the Cow Palace, I've got to be honest with you, because... Uh, Cow Palace was more down towards San Francisco, so we had to travel quite a way down to get to the Cow Palace. But that was kind of like one of the first big indoor arenas I'd ever really um, I had the opportunity to kind of play in. You know, there was no indoor facilities quite that big. I think it held around 10,000 people. And um, we went down there, and actually we started practicing there. I think it was like a week or two weeks before the tournament started that we were holding there. And I think we played against uh, the Tampa Bay Rowdies and there's a couple of other teams in this tournament from the uh, North American Soccer League. But uh, I love this game. I thrived on it. Uh, I just uh, love the, the speed of it and, and the, the opportunity to score goals. But there's something i got to tell you about it, Tim. Uh uh, Gabo Gavarich was our, our coach. He was a Yugoslavian coach. And um, all of us kind of uh, had some background in uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, carpentry or carpet laying and different stuff like this. And uh, Gabo Gavarich used to know, know how to lay carpet. And um, so the players could earn more money before this tournament began. We used to go down there and we even laid down the indoor-outdoor carpet in the Cow Palace so that we were ready to play on it. So for a week before we got to practice on it, we had the opportunity to go down there, earn some extra money and help lay the carpet uh, in the Cow Palace and, uh, before we played on it. So, you know, if if there was some kinks in the carpet, it was our fault, nobody else's. But um, <laughs> that's how we kind of got in there, laid the carpet. And there's a, there was another thing. It was just like an ice hockey arena, actually. And um, I always remember that around the the perimeter, like in ice hockey nowadays, you'd have that high glass and, and this kind of thing. 
what was around this arena at the t- at the sides and and the the very end where it was a high end was this like um uh chipping wire you know it was like a a mesh wire where sometimes when you're running along the boards and your hand would catch in this this wire you know and it was like as i say little square holes in the wire stop the ball going out and hitting anybody and then at the ends they would um build these goals that were like 16 feet wide and four foot high and so to, to kind of square off the end of the arena and what that really happened there was any time the ball got over four foot high uh, and and kind of sat on a ledge behind the goal and you'd have to wait for that ball to come off the ledge because they hadn't really developed the rules yet and how they were going to uh, you know compensate for that and you'd be waiting uh, for this ball to kind of like roll off this back ledge back down onto the surface or close to the surface before you could hit it and try and get a chance of shooting at the goal again. And the goals, as I say, were 16 feet wide and and uh, uh, four foot high. So, you know, all, it was, they were still trying to develop the game and put the, put the goals. They hadn't developed the game where they put the goals right in the actual radius wall, what, what uh, it ended up being. And then they were, you know, seven foot high. And I think they were a little bit uh, narrower but uh, more realistic uh, soccer goals than that original goal. But it was uh, pretty funny to look at that and, and see uh, and and see players waiting for that ball to come rolling up the top of the, the back. So, so I was like a pinball machine with the ball sort of stuck. I, I'm actually looking at some of those pictures from this book, and I will put that on our, our website, uh, goodseatsillavailable.com, with this episode. And and, and we'll, be, we'll post uh, some of these photos as well as uh, when we socially promote this on the online and everything but uh, it, you're absolutely right i mean your recollection is is spot on i mean you see these sort of uh uh sort of uh, fences fencing sort of chicken wire type fencing <laughs> it, it's what really where the plexiglass would be in today's modern game and then and then you see basically like this cage which is really this goal kind of thing and and the ball literally could sit on top of it if it didn't uh roll off correctly but it's it just it's a very interesting experiment right because i got to think you know, that it was fun to play, even though it wasn't sort of fully formed yet. And, and ironic because, what, in 75 or so, right, this was sort of a, a sidelight uh, for the NASL that, you know, just a, a number of years later, this major indoor soccer league, which you would p- play a prominent role in later, uh, would actually truly professionalize that and, and make a solid go of it as a full-time enterprise. And that, that kind of woke the NASL up actually to do it as well after having, if you will, invented the game, you know, with this tournament in 75. Oh no, definitely, most definitely. I mean, that's what was crazy about it. Um, I think the 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 indoor game kind of. I think a lot of American people that were watching the indoor game at that time, they loved that game when we played in the Campos because you know there was a lot more goals scored, a lot more uh, goalkeepers diving, saving, ricochets, ball bouncing around, uh, a lot more uh, you know action quicker action than the outdoor game. So I think, you know, that's what kind of like caught the eye of a lot of people and made people realize that um, the indoor game could be a big factor in this country as well. And uh, the MISL kind of uh, jumped on that and took off as the North American Soccer League 
as I say, we were trying to, we was, they, they kind of definitely developed the game, but they hadn't kind of critiqued it and they hadn't figured out, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to play this game? And, you know, how can we get this, uh, this end of the field where we can put a goal in it, where, you know, the ball's not held up, you know, it's continuously moving and bouncing back. And then they finally, uh, figured it all out and, and came up with a lot more different rules and regulations. But uh, that was definitely the um, the beginning of the, and, uh, and, uh, and the start of the uh, major indoor soccer league because uh, they took it and, and eventually had 20 some, 21 teams, 24 teams, I think, in the, in the MISL where, you know, uh, players were were playing in the outdoor league in the NASL or playing in the ASL and then dropping down and in the in the winter months or coming to indoor soccer. So players were able to make a salary year round as well, Tim. You gotta remember that that, you know, we weren't getting paid a lot of money like they are nowadays and uh, you know, we were you know, we love to be able to play a game and get paid for it. I know that's what I did. But um, it, it was fantastic that we could play year-round and, and uh, go from outdoor to indoor and, uh, you know, continue that uh, that uh, soccer game and, and the fans building the fan base, which I think a lot of clubs did, you know. So uh, I think it, it, uh, it, it really took off in the indoor game and... Uh, I'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't kept on going, but uh, as you know, the the outdoor game seems to have taken over now, and uh, indoor seems to be, there's still a lot of teams playing, I know, but not at the kind of level that we were playing at in the uh, NASL and MISL. Yeah, that's that's true, and there's almost a, sort of a nostalgia for it, and I, I do know there's a, an effort to get futsal going, which is obviously a little, you know, more of a, a purist's uh, approach to it, but... Um, but let's uh, I want to go back to your San Jose years, because uh, you, you, I guess, you know, being in San Jose until pretty much the end of the decade. Right. You were uh, you were witness to, you know, uh, not only the success in, in San Jose and, and how that team and franchise grew. But but frankly, that's what those the halcyon days when the the league itself was really sort of just taken off. Right. And you were talking about salaries and stuff. But uh, I, I got to I'm curious to see to hear what your thoughts were about, you know, how. uh solid you thought this league was given all of the influx of talent like the Pele's and the Beckenbauer's of the world and the George Best's of the world. And and I got to think some of the money that was starting to come in as well. Uh, did you think it was sustainable? Uh, did you think it was here it is finally happening? Uh, did you see any cracks in the armor as you finished your career in San Jose and then went to places like Memphis for a year and then the reconstituted Atlanta Chiefs for another two years uh, it sounded like a little more franchise bingo again, uh, like you experienced er- early on. No, you're definitely right. It, it was, you know, I, I got to admit when I saw that, you know, when we had 24 teams in the in the North American Soccer League and uh, the New York Cosmos, that Pele Beckenbauer, as you were naming, all these fantastic, Johan Cruyff came here, Georgie Best came, uh, all the players that I had watched, uh, growing up and, and never thought that I would be able to play or, you know, be on the field with. And uh, I thought that um, I'd, I'd, made, I'd, I'd made the right decision because, you know, I took a chance on coming to this country and thinking that it was going to make it. And I thought definitely it's, it's, it's there now and salaries are going to increase and, you know, hopefully 
I was going to be on that list as a little bit too, so I could, you know, uh, support my family better and, and uh, live pretty pretty well. But um, uh, yeah, I never I never ever thought that the North American Soccer League would go through that period where franchises started to uh, uh, falter and uh, teams were dropping out of the league. And um, I just thought that uh, it was just on its way and was just going, going to continuously grow and develop like most other countries with their professional leagues and have a Division One, Division Two, Premier League, whatever you want to call it. And uh, we were going to get that that way at that time. But um, obviously, I was definitely wrong. And I've I got to be honest with you, Tim. I think uh, some of that uh, was kind of the the money that the the clubs or some clubs were spending kind of like uh, was the beginning of the end of the North American Soccer League. I think the New York Cosmos, you know, were paying Pelé, you know, $9 million, Beckenbauer and all these guys. And a lot of other clubs in the league couldn't afford these kind of players. So clubs would have maybe two or three top-end players where they would come and play. But these players were coming and uh, kind of like um, taking, you know, uh, using or, or, you know, absorbing all the money that they could. And uh, the franchises were really struggling for from it, you know, because we some of the clubs couldn't compete kind of like with the New York Cosmos and, uh, and with the Rats. Tampa Bay Rowdies and uh, you know some some other clubs that that had big money players that could draw people. I mean, you got to remember the New York Cosmos were drawing you know seventy you know seventy thousand people to a game, so they could uh, generate enough money to to pay their pay their players, and their players would go on a world tour at the end of the season to all different kinds of countries because they had every different nationality player playing on it and the season only lasted for four months or, or you know, maybe five months counting pre-season, six months at the most. So a lot of the other franchises couldn't, you know, make that money to keep paying their players or keeping uh, getting better players every, every year. So I think it was kind of like a, the beginning of the end, you know. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called the National Forgotten League. 
by Dan Daly, entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two, uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. Let's juxtapose that sort of uh, uh, those New York Cosmos days and, and uh, fair disclosure. I was a, as a kid, a season ticket holder for a number of years watching those games. So I'm, I'm partly to blame, I guess. Um, <laughs> so uh, d- juxtapose that with um, Memphis, 1980, um, you know, uh, not the most well attended team, right. But a pretty, pretty gritty uh, club. Some really quality talent is, is a great picture I'm looking at here, which I'll share with you of you in the air. It looks like you're celebrating a goal. Like you're literally in midair and your fist is up and you're obviously celebrating a, a goal in your number 12 Jersey. But, um, but what was it? What was the season in Memphis? Like given all the adulation and the excitement that you had experienced for years in, in San Jose, I got to think Memphis was a bit of a, I don't know, a challenge, I guess, in terms of uh, the soccer uh, uh, knowledge there and appreciation and that kind of stuff. Oh, definitely. I mean, that was kind of like uh you, I the, let me give you, give you the reason. Uh, one of the reasons that I went there, you know, um, San Jose, we, we're going through a uh, bit of a turmoil. I think um, Milan Mandrik had sold the team to another new owner, um, and the the team uh, was struggling uh, financial wise. And uh, an opportunity came around with Memphis had a new team or. or a, a team that was a newish team and they had a new owner and uh, they uh, I think purchased me for, uh, from the San Jose earthquakes and my the ownership of the earthquakes at that time as I say we got on hard times and um, uh, I think you know had the opportunity to make some money on a player uh, I was that player um, the only reason I went to Memphis because uh, I got to meet uh, Charlie Cook, who was a great player in England at one time, and I'd, I'd, I'd seen him growing up uh, from Chelsea, um, was the coach, and uh, he contacted me and told me that you know the the, the, the Memphis team, we have a new owner, we, we we're going to you know grow and and develop this team and make this franchise. We want you to be a part of it. Like you were in San Jose, and uh, we were we purchased you, and I think they sold me for about a hundred some thousand dollars. And uh, the reason I went there, Tim, was because I had a um, guaranteed three-year contract with the Memphis Rogues. I did not have an agent of any kind, or uh, I, I had a kind of a, a league contract, and. Um, that was one of the reasons I went there for more stability. You know, I know it's hopefully going to be there for three years. The franchise, we're going to spend a lot more money and grow the game and advertise it. And, and the game was going to get big in, in uh, Memphis. And um, what happened was the owner, after six months, uh, folded the team. And 
I was put into, uh, I was picked up again by Atlanta of all places. But uh, me, me thinking I had a guaranteed contract, it, it had nothing in there saying about if the franchise <clears throat> dissolved and the owner folded it. You know what I mean? So that shows you how naive I was. And and in at that time, you know, we didn't have agents and we didn't have contracts and and big, you know. Uh, 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 attorneys representing any of us. So um, that was one of the biggest reasons I went to Memphis. But I had a great time there, and I got to admit that uh, I played with some great players. But it was a, a kind of like going and, and starting all over again. And uh, and uh, uh, actually, um, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, and then when that uh, that happened to me six months after I. Uh, was there after the first, the season, uh, and then moved back in, into Atlanta. It was kind of like uh, I had to keep rejuvenating, you know, going back to these places where I'd been, or again preaching the word of soccer and trying to keep, uh, you know, my ability up as high as I possibly could, and uh, and making making it work and making a living for my family, you know. Well, you were not only making it work. I mean, you uh, you know, when all is said and done, even uh, and your and Atlanta was your last NASL stop. I mean, you you wound up as the fifth leading scorer in all time uh, NASL history, right? With 120 goals across, I think it was like 240, 241 games. I mean, you know, only Canalia, Alan Willie, Carl Heitz, Granitsa, and Ron Futcher were were ahead of you in that regard. And you know, you're ahead of folks like you know other uh, legends like Alan Green and Mike Mike Stojanovic and and, and Ace Netzelenge and Steve David and Elida Midget. Uh, you you know, it, you clearly, uh, despite moving around and and being part of this uh, wacky thing called the NASL, uh, sh- certainly didn't lack for skill on the field, especially putting the ball in the net. No, I didn't, and that was that's what was great for me as well, Tim. I mean, you know, um, you always doubt. You, you know, you're you're wondering, can you do it again? Can you can you make this happen? I I just think I had a um, had a different kind of an attitude, you know, Tim. I think I I just uh, when I ever went to a new club, or you know, when I was at a club and the club would bring in you know, uh, this high-profile forward or another high-profile player, I used to look at it as, how can this guy help me become, a, you know, a better goal scorer? How can I, you know, uh, learn more from this guy or uh, this this player can, you know, help me because he's a better passer of the ball. He can see me in positions that other players couldn't and, and get the ball to me in the penalty area or in the, in the six yard box where I can get on the end of it. So I think it was my, uh, that kind of attitude that I had that, and a will to, you know, never quit and keep on going that um, really helped me along. Uh, and just to say, you know, I, I can make it and I can, I can keep on going. And like you say, you know, it, it, it worked out that way. I just, um, had a knack to get in the right places at the right time and be with the right players. And they got me, you know, as again, a lot of good players that I played with uh, made that work for me as well. So, you know, the um, I, I did do very, very well, but uh, a lot of players helped me do that too. Well, Atlanta got you playing uh, the indoor game again, uh, obviously with also an outdoor. And we had uh, uh, Chiefs general manager at the time, Terry Hansen, uh, on a previous episode. And we were talking about the interesting story about how the the team indoors uh, uh, outdrew the team that played outdoors, uh, which I find 
incredibly interesting, but uh, maybe even a hint or a testament that at least at that in that era, that time, uh, this indoor game was a little bit more exciting and peppy and maybe of interest to to the American sports fan than the somewhat more of an outdoor game. Um, were you sensing that indoor was kind of where the action was going uh, when you were there? Well, I guess. Yeah, it definitely felt that way because, you know, as the, as the teams were dropping out of the North American Soccer League, too, you know, the franchises were kind of dwindling away. And I think it was down to eight and nine, I can't remember exactly, but eight, eight teams. And um, uh, when I got, went back to Atlanta, we actually played it, uh, a game there and had 12,000 fans there. And it was uh, Who Killed JR Night? If you remember, Dallas was a big soap kind of opera, uh, you know, that um, they they wanted, they wanted played a game on the night that um, JR uh, got killed in this uh, soap opera. And they were going to show this at the end of the game or, uh, as well. So they drew about 12,600 people to this in the uh, the Omni in uh, in Atlanta. And what a great atmosphere. And we went out and we won the game as well, which made it even better. But, um, so that, I'm sorry. So that, that that was a promotion then when they would show Dallas as at the end of the game as a, as a, as a promotion to stick around and come to the game, huh? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and it was, uh, as I say, it was kind of like this was a big, big thing in, in that, uh, in that show where who shot JR and, uh, it just, I don't know whether, I hope they were coming to see us play, but not just to see who shot JR, but, uh, you know, you would hope that they, um, I think the idea was to get as many people there as possible. And those people that were kind of hesitant to come to a game, but got an opportunity and the tickets weren't super expensive either. You know what I mean? So, uh, to expose them to the indoor game. And I think, uh, that kind of took off as well, you know, where, uh, you know, the MISL caught on to that. And then, uh, you know, uh, that's where the MISL, MISL started coming around. And uh, then after Atlanta, I, had, I I was there for a couple of years playing in the outdoor league. We were, um, Ted Turner was the owner, which was a, a, a different kind of an owner, but he owned a bunch of different franchises in, in Atlanta. And before he, uh, kind of pulled out of all of that and uh, went into CNN, you know, CNN, uh, uh, you know, uh, TV. And uh, we, uh, we, I was there for two years and, and then the opportunity to came, came around to jump into the MISL. So uh, let's, let's talk, let's talk about the MISL in particular. Let's talk about Pittsburgh because, uh, our friend John Fredlin was the uh, guy who got us uh, uh, connected to you, I guess, uh, through I guess there was a reunion with the uh, the River Hounds uh, recently. And uh, through his good graces, we we're able to figure out a way to get connected and, and drag you onto this podcast. But um, let's talk about your Pittsburgh spirit days, because uh, clearly uh, you were uh, quite a star and a standout there, too. And and I, and I get the sense from lots of uh, lots of people that I've actually ever met from Pittsburgh who who lived there during that time have very, very fond memories of the spirit. Uh, I got to think that uh, that was reflected back by the players too, no? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of, uh, uh, it was kind of the feeling, Tim, I think when I first went to San Jose 
and the atmosphere there with the with the fans and their relationship with the with the players on the field and off the field, you know, with all the the different promotions and different things that we were doing. I came to uh, Pittsburgh in uh, what was it, eighty one, and um, and I've been here ever since. And uh, uh, I got that feeling when I first came here, you know, uh, down to earth people. They like a hard-working player, you know. I'm I'm going to go out there. I'm going to give it everything I've got. Kind of like the Steelers mentality, you know. And uh, and we were playing indoor soccer. That was a new sport here. And uh, at that time, if you think about it, there was only uh, there wasn't cable and all this kind of stuff. There was free television networks, and we were mainly on on those television networks all the time, just as much as the Pirates and the Steelers. Uh, the Penguins, uh, we were playing in the same indoor stadium as the Penguins. Um, we used to draw about 10,000 people at that time, and they would draw about 5,000. So uh, the game, again, kind of took off here, and uh, I was lucky to be a big part of it because, uh, I, as I said, I love the indoor game because it just... Um, I just I just lit up when when I had the opportunity to uh, you know uh, use the walls as a as a partner and and the quickness of the game and the rebounds and and the opportunity to get and uh, and score lots of goals and I think that's why it really took off here because you know the average goals in a game were about 13 at that time so you know compared to the outdoor game where you see a one or two zero game that's what caught the attention of the fans and uh, I think that's Another big reason why it took off. But again, we had a great group of guys that uh, came from uh, a lot of different nationalities and uh, uh, adapted to the indoor game coming from outdoor and um, made this really an exciting time in this area. And and to this day, I uh, still get a lot of people coming up to me and usually they're um, kids that I met during the games or at halftime or after the games and signing autographs who now have kids that, you know, they're trying to introduce me as their, you know, they're here. I was a soccer player and uh, a lot of these kids look at me and think, who's this old guy, you know, but <laughs> the parents have just been brought up with that and they love the game and uh, they, uh, you know, never, never stopped coming up for autographs and, wanting to talk about different games and situations that happened in the uh, indoor game. Any uh, any players uh, that you remember fondly? I Certainly Stan Terlecki was obviously a, a huge goal-scoring threat along with you. Uh, you had John O'Hara on that team. You had uh, uh, Helmut David Dudek Kenzie, and a lot, of, yeah. a lot of folks, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, fantastic, some fantastic players. Some, not just Stan Terlecki. I mean, Stan Terlecki was a, a fantastic player, um, a different different kind of a player. Uh, uh, the indoor game, he, he just uh, uh, exploded when when I played with him the first season um, when we first met and and they brought Stan in. Uh, I we could play with a man down and and Stan and I would play together and I, I would uh, get to the far post and and Stan Teleki would find me, you know, and uh, the the. The biggest problem I have had after this first year was uh, Stan realized, and I think the 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 ownership made a bit of a mistake. They said to Stan, uh, for every goal you score, 
you know, you get a bonus of $100 or whatever it was at that time. And then Stan stopped passing the ball to him because he wanted to score goals to make uh, make more money. But, um, you know, I think what what was crazy with that was he was he was a fantastic player. We had three different lines. So then we, uh, you know, had a, a, a Polish line where we, we got some great players like Adam Topolsky, uh, Gregor Stojic, um, um, Ian Sibbis. Uh, we had uh, on that kind of a line, there was a Polish line and then a, a kind of a European line where, you know, uh, and actually John O'Hara played on the on the Polish line because he, he did so well as a defender as an American player with those guys. And uh, I played with uh, Dave McKenzie, um, you know, uh, Johnny O'Hara played with us now and again, uh, Marcio Liete, uh, just a, a bunch of different nationalities that, uh, you know, came in and, and we had a great rapport with the fans as well. I mean, we just, um, it took off and uh, we were drawing some great crowds and we were on television all the time. We had a lot of games at that time. I think it was 48 games in a season and uh, I think we made the playoffs once or twice. But um, other than that, you know, we were doing great attendance-wise compared to the um, to the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins and uh the owner at that time was uh, De Bartolo. Yep. And uh, I think the what what was the uh, the downfall of the spirit was that uh, Mario Lemieux came along, and uh, uh, the Penguins had him uh, the uh, picked him in the draft, and uh, that was the change that really happened, where uh, the ownership kind of went to uh, ice hockey. Instead of the you know the indoor soccer game, else uh, who knows where it would have been today? Looking at the NASL, NSL. Uh, yeah, you also uh, then um, uh, played a season with the Blast and uh, in Baltimore and the LA Lasers, your last uh, uh, MISL team. But you also snuck in a um, an outdoor season with uh, uh, your old uh, uh, counterpart at the Tampa Bay Rowdies, Rodney Marsh's Carolina Lightning. Um, that was an interesting. Must have been an interesting story too, because they had won, I think, in '81 previously, the year before you played the the, uh, the ASL championship. Uh, that was, I guess, your last real outdoor uh, season experience. But I guess really the only chance to play outdoors, given the increasingly full time schedule that the MISL was now under undergoing. Yeah, that's that was true. You know, it was getting more and more difficult to uh, try and play indoor and outdoor too. You know, it was just too much. And obviously, you're getting older as well, and your body is kind of like deteriorating. So um, it was getting very, very hard for players to do that. Uh, but playing outdoor and indoor uh, year-round, it, it uh, was just there were just too many games. Uh, I had the great opportunity to go down there to the to the Lightning. Uh, Rodney Marsh was the coach, and uh, what a great experience that was for me. I didn't have such a good season when I got there, actually. I kind of like went through a, uh, I played a few games and I think what had happened to me, I was kind of drained from the indoor season. Sure. And I, I got, a, I got a very bad, uh, stomach pull, you know, I think it was a hernia and I, it kept me out of a, a bunch of games that, you know, I felt so bad about because, uh, Rodney brought me in and, you know, was obviously looking for me to help this team 
win another championship, you know, if they could, because they were in the finals of the year before, and the crowd was, was 21,000 people at most of the games, and they were looking to kind of repeat, and they were bringing in some players, and I uh, I kind of fell short. I think that was a, a bit bit of a downer for me, uh, you know, uh, after such a, a long period of doing very, very well. But Bloodney um, was understanding... And he and he appreciated it because I said to him, I think it was like uh, two thirds through the season or a third through the season. Hey, Rodney, I I I'm I'm just feeling so bad that I'm I can't get on the field. I'm injured with this pull. If you need me to go home and leave the team, I will do. You know, I don't have a problem with that. And he said, No, Paul, when we need you here for you know your enthusiasm with the other players and the motivation and. Uh, we can get you back to fit and, and playing again. And I kind of ended up the, the season playing one or two games, but that was about it at that time. But uh, what a great opportunity. Again, another new kind of franchise coming around where the game was growing like uh, like crazy at that time. Well, uh, your, your indoor career certainly uh, uh, didn't... Um didn't suffer at all, right? I mean, I, I think when you were the spirit, you were scoring on average, I think, over a goal a game. Uh, and yeah. even with the blast and the lasers, you put in another, I don't know, according to my records here, almost another 70 goals as well in, in two seasons in those two places. So clearly you, you took to the indoor game very well. And, and there's no doubt that uh, uh, your scoring prowess, both indoor as well as outdoor, was is, uh, is quite notable. Um, obviously, uh, part of the calculus that uh, uh, allowed you to uh, be uh, inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame Um uh, before we get to that, though, I, I guess I want to one last sort of little chapter here in your in your pro career uh, that's uh, interesting to me and we really haven't delved into quite yet on this show is it's the uh, Continental Indoor Soccer League, the CISL. Um, you you want to uh, give us uh, a little bit of a taste of what that was about, uh, both in Pittsburgh and uh, Detroit. Um, this was a summertime league, right, where the, the idea of indoor soccer was a summer thing to essentially keep the arenas humming that uh, when hockey and, and basketball were off season, right? Yeah, definitely, Tim. That, that's exactly what it was about. And and actually, the uh, commissioner of the league worked with the MISL at one time, and I think he was the assistant assistant commissioner. And um, he he developed this league and and got a, a bunch of uh, owners together and started the uh, Continental Indoor Soccer League, is what it's called. And uh, I had a great opportunity here in in uh, in Pittsburgh because the ownership uh, for the uh, ice hockey team had changed, and they were going to bring uh, indoor uh, soccer in here in the summertime, which uh, everybody kind of like raised their eyebrows at because you know uh, in Pittsburgh when the weather's nice, you not really want to come inside, you know, and pretty much everywhere else in the country, I would imagine. But um, the game was so big here with the spirit. I think we we, uh, we did pretty pretty well with the uh, CISL for two years. We were drawing five or 6,000 people to a game in the Civic Arena. And um, I think the, the, the span was about three to four months, actually. And um, uh, I, had a, I had a great time there because I was the coach of the team. I got that offer from from the club and and took it on, and uh, obviously uh, it was a big part of my life, and I knew enough about it to where we could make things happen. I, I thought, and 
we did well for two years, and then the franchise uh, kind of like went out. Uh, they were they were dropping the team in Pittsburgh, and uh, the Detroit uh, Neon came around and uh, offered me an opportunity to go to Detroit, and I went there for two years and uh, finished uh, coaching up in in Detroit. But um, uh, the CISL was a, a definitely a, a different concept and to play indoor soccer in the summertime. And uh, I think that's kind of like where it failed because like I say, most, most of the, um, most of the teams and franchises uh, trying to play indoor in the summer when the weather, you know, was nice. And a lot of people, it was tough to get people indoors to come and watch it. And uh, that's where a lot of them had a hard time with it. But uh um, it, it was a great experience, and I got to see and, and got to go to a, a lot of different uh, cities and, and see some great players and, and uh, coach some great players uh, in that league, you know, and that was a great experience for me, too. I, I got to ask in Detroit, uh, having uh, playing for uh, in two years a, t- uh, a team called the Neon and then the Safari or coaching. <laughs> Uh, did you at least get with two uh, car brands, by the way, did you or were the players uh, at least get a, a chance to to get a, a car uh, during your, your playing experience? Or was it just, you know, promotional and name only? No, you, you're dead right. I had a neon and uh, and then we had, uh, there was a safari van, if you remember. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but uh, that was the, uh, you know, obviously, the connection in Detroit, uh, the car connection, and um, they were big sponsors sponsors of the team, and uh, we did get vehicles to use while we were playing. And uh, I had a neon, and I had a safari as well. Yeah, there, you, there you go. So, friends, there, there. If anybody uh, younger uh, out there is listening and wants to become a professional soccer player, you too can get a. Uh, a, a, a look them up a, Do- a, a Dodge Neon or a, a, a GM Safari <laughs> minivan probably two of the most styling uh, vehicles you could probably ever imagine being a professional soccer player uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure it was, got, better than, it was better than catching the bus uh, well I, I'm sure <laughs> that I'm sure but but probably not much more than that I'm sure you've got some great pictures of, of those vehicles and you driving in them um, all right a couple of last things and I don't want to keep you forever here uh, Paul you've been wonderful with your time uh, Two uh, two things. One, um, before we get to your uh, Hall of Fame uh, thing, because it's obviously a, a, a big deal and something I want to talk about. Um, you did uh, uh, have a, a bit of a spell with the uh, U.S. national team back in, uh, I guess it was 73, right? Uh, a couple of games. Do you want to explain that little situation? Because um, I think at that point, uh, I, you weren't a U.S. citizen, were you? But yet you were playing for the U.S. national team? Yeah, I wasn't a citizen, and uh, somehow, some way, I got picked up by uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation, and they um, we played a game in uh, Windsor, Ontario. I think it was against the um, I think it was the Polish national team then, and uh, it was a, a kind of a little tournament that we were we, we were invited to, and they pulled. There was about three or four different players they pulled from different teams at that time. They were starting to pull the the, the ranked players from those clubs, and I got an opportunity to play uh, on the national team two times. And uh, I was not a citizen at that time, you know. <laughs> so it was kind of crazy. I mean, it would never happen nowadays, but um, at that time we were they were they were kind of 
uh, hoping to, you know, uh, rejuvenate and, and develop this uh, the U.S. national team and uh, played with Carl Rote and uh, a bunch of different other American players that uh, were very good players. Um, and uh, it, it was a it was a it was a different experience. I got it was a great opportunity for me. I mean, you wouldn't say no to it, and uh, I didn't even think about it. you know I. I thought it was just, it had something to do just because I played soccer in this country, you know, and uh, when you did that, you could play on the national team, but obviously later on, you tend to find out that probably was illegal at that time because I wasn't a citizen. So, um, kind of crazy in that respect, Tim, uh, getting an opportunity to play the a national team that actually won both games, which was a, a rarity at that time uh, in the international game against uh, the U.S., you know. Well, uh, I'm certainly happy that the um, National Soccer Hall of Fame in 2003 did not uh, let that prevent you from being inducted. Uh, You can imagine the snip that that could have been uh, in today's, uh, uh, you know, uh, oversight of of the game and stuff. I think it's a very, very interesting piece of trivia. Were you the only player that that might have happened to, or do you think there were other players Either at that I era, think or two, I think there was two or three other players on those teams that I was on. Uh, I don't know exactly because it was one, not one of these things that you know. These had been players that are, that probably came from another country, but uh, I didn't know if they were citizens or not. You know what I mean? I just I just turned up, put my uniform on, and went out there and did the business, you know, and, and tried to do the best I could and 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 play for this country that. I've lived in longer than I ever lived in England, you know, and, uh, you know, it was a great honor for me at that time, even though I hadn't been here a long time, but uh, knew that I wanted to be, you know, um, a part of the U.S. soccer scene and uh, actually, uh, you know, what a fantastic honor to be, you know, uh, inducted into to the, the National Hall of Fame. How did you find out? Was it a surprise? And, uh, you know, what what does it mean to you to be, you know, especially now that soccer is becoming such a much more uh, mainstream and and seriously uh, understood sport in this country uh, to be a member of that select group, especially having pioneered back in the early days when, you know, frankly, it wasn't uh, wasn't all that certain that it was going to be as as successful a sport as it is today. I think that's what it is, Tim. I think it's the reward, you know. I I never would have believed that um, I would have had the opportunity to get into the National Hall of, of Fame, and uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in the, inducted into the San Jose Earthquakes Hall of Fame and the, the City of San Jose's Hall of Fame. I this is just stuff that. Um, you just don't believe happens, you know. I just, I just played the game. I love to play it. I played it for fans, especially, you know, in San Jose and Pittsburgh. Anywhere I played, I, you know, I went out on the field thinking these people are paying money to watch me play, and and if I mess up, I've got to make up for it, and you know, uh, score a goal or do whatever I need to do to to put us back on, you know in the right, you know, send these people home happy and, uh, you know, just this, you know, just to be, you know, by your peers, uh, elected into that is, uh, it's just a great honor. But, um, looking back at it now, you know, from the beginning, I just feel that, uh, it, 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 it really works. You just don't quit and you keep on working and, and you, 
I knew that this game would get big in this country at one time, and I wanted to be a part of it. And I think, uh, you know, it, that's what proves it when I look at and and you remind me that I'm in the soccer hall of fame, and you know, and uh, people come up and talk to me about that, or ask me questions, or interview me about it. And, uh, that's when you really appreciate, uh, you know, uh, all the people and players. Uh, that you're involved with in the game and and how it's developed and where it's going and hopefully you know we're going to be um, one of these teams obviously not this next World Cup but one of these teams in the World Cup and getting to semi-finals and quarter-finals and final. All right, so I can't let you go then without sort of uh, weighing in, given your uh, your rich history, your Hall of Fame career. Uh, what what is uh, how how do you look at the state of the game in the United States, both on the pro level, uh, the international level? I mean, there's a lot of it's it's, it's an interesting uh, crossroads we're in right now, right? Obviously, not making uh, the tournament for next year, uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, dissension I think now amongst the professional ranks about uh, Major League Soccer and 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 will the the NASL be able to survive as a Division Two team and and you know, what about promotion or relegation? I mean, there's a lot of people, I mean, I think it's a good thing, all right, that that people are actually paying attention and, and seriously debating a lot of these issues that, you know, longtime fans like us, you know, have, have known about for quite some time, but but has never been sort of in the, you know, the, 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 the larger public consciousness in this country. So I guess that's a good thing on that level. But I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about where you think the pro and the international game are going uh, at this moment in time, which is uh, not, you know, a little uncertain now, uh, given what we've experienced the last couple of weeks with the the U.S. national team. Well, I got to agree with you. I think it's woke. You know, it's it's opened a lot of eyes and 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 woke the game. You know, the people in the game up, and I think it's uh, it's now stirring up. But I mean, uh, I have I I have a lot of people that I know in 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 the in the Pittsburgh area. You know that uh, are soccer fans when they see me, but not really, and then they. They, you know, when anything like this happens, and and the U.S. are not going to make this the World Cup this this time around, what do you think about it? And I I think that it's it's time, you know, that we we do wake up and we re- we have to realize that um, I, I'm doing a lot of youth de- youth uh, uh, coaching and youth development stuff still, Tim, and I just see a potential here. Uh, unlimited. Uh, we have some great youth players. And I think uh, we've got a lot of uh, players around the world playing now where, you know, at, at one time when I was coming here at 19, we have players now going to everywhere else in the world to play uh, with pro teams. So, you know, I kind of came here to develop the game, uh, introduce it and create American players. So I think we're doing that and I think we're getting there. I just think that we have to, um, you know, uh, uh, step back now and realize that we've still got a lot more catching up to do. And we've got to realize that uh, we've got a lot of potential in this country and, and a lot of good players. And we've just got to capitalize on that and and, and find ways of find, getting them uh, into a group. And we've got to remember that this is such a big country. And like I say, we players all over the world now that um, are playing in, in top-level teams that are American players 
we got to you know and get those guys in here and and develop them and and make them a part of this uh, new new U.S. national team and uh, obviously the coach is a big part of it. They've got to uh, obviously get somebody that can do that kind of thing and 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 draw the uh, the quality of players that I know are out there and and we've got growing up as well and uh, tap into that and I think. Uh, I really feel. Hopefully, I'll see before you know I'm gone. Where we we see a U.S. national team in the World Cup final. Well, uh, uh, from your mouth to God's ears, I mean, let's let's hope that's the case. And um, look, it's also I think we also need to your point. We step back. We recognize that um, you know without uh, without players of a pioneering nature such as yourself, uh, you know, we wouldn't even be in this uh, this position to even consider you know, uh, our, our next, uh, uh, achievements and levels of this country. I mean, we've got soccer specific stadiums. We have a thriving professional league. We've got a very successful and growing, uh, minor league, uh, uh, soccer, uh, league system. Uh, you mentioned the youth game. I mean, you know, these are all things that, you know, you go back to when you were playing in your earliest days here in the States in 1972 and 73, uh, none of this was here. So, you know, frankly, uh, without players and, and dedication, uh, from folks like yourself, uh, we probably wouldn't even be in this this position today. So, you know, that's a, a backhanded way of saying my thanks for uh, regaling us with some of your uh, your achievements and your uh, and your career and your legacy. And uh, I, I look forward to hopefully staying in touch and and maybe some more good things to talk about in this uh, in the in the world of soccer uh, as we move forward. Oh, I'd love to, Tim. I appreciate it a lot, and I'm glad that uh, you're out there and uh, and and we're we're still preaching the word of soccer, you know, and. Uh, like you say, there's there's a lot of new players that are playing in the MISL and MLS, sorry, and uh, and and players out there that um, you know they've still got to go out and they've still got to give back as well. You know, they, it's not just. Uh, I mean, we got it going now. They've got to continue that on. So hopefully they will do that as the as the game grows. All right, there it is. There's our chat with uh, Paul Child, uh, National Soccer Hall of Famer. He and uh, our fifth such Hall of Famer that we've had on this little podcast. And uh, uh, I've loved every single one of them. Uh, lots of uh, uh, really deep and interesting stories about uh, the earliest days uh, of, uh, of soccer in this country that, um, you know, not everybody sort of appreciates and uh, frankly doesn't remember uh, and, um, you know, needs to. Uh, the uh, The sport of soccer is... Uh, is very rich and colorful uh, these days. Uh, it was certainly uh, less than that, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And um, I think it's really important to remember some of the contributions that folks like uh, Paul and, and others that we've uh, had on this this uh, this podcast thus far. I mean, Rick Davis, uh, Dr. Joe Matchnick, uh, Paul Gardner, uh, Kyle Rowe Jr., of course. Uh, you can go back into those episodes uh, and regale in some of those stories. We also mentioned um, Terry Hansen, who was the general manager of the Atlanta Chiefs, uh, when Paul was there, uh, that's episode number 14. You can go back to that one. And of course, uh, who could forget crazy George Henderson? Uh, that was our uh, number seven episode. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, and you can get some more of your San Jose earthquake memories uh, and other things there as well. Paul Child, we thank you for uh, being part of our, our conversation. And uh, in particular, we want to thank our, our friend in Pittsburgh, John Fredland, uh, for uh, getting us connected with Paul. And uh, you too can be part of the show by... Uh, by being engaged with us uh, on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. You'll find our email address and all that kind of stuff there. 
uh, as John did. Uh, you will also find uh, our uh, Twitter feed, of course, at uh, Good Seats Still. Uh, you will find a uh, an Instagram page called Good Seats Still Available, uh, where we post a nice little image from our uh, show every day, uh, as well as a uh, Facebook page if you want to give us a like there. Certainly can use some like, love uh, on Facebook. We appreciate that, too. Uh, let's see. What else? We want to thank our friends at Podfly. Of course, uh, it's uh, Jerry Payne, uh, Eric Begay, David Gregerson, Corey Coates, uh, Podfly Productions. That's Podfly, P-O-D-F-L-Y dot net. They are the uh, professionals uh, down in Gadsden, Alabama, uh, that uh, make this podcast sound uh, as uh, uh, delicious as uh, as possible, despite all of my efforts to make it less than that. Uh, so we thank all the boys down in uh, Gadsden, Alabama, and Podfly Productions. And again, if you want some help getting going with your own podcasting stuff, podfly.net is the place to go. Tell them that Tim Hanlon and or Good Seats Still Available sent you. And uh, hopefully they will uh, remember and uh, appreciate that recommendation. And I think you will appreciate their services as well. All right. That's enough for me. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week with another fun-filled episode. And uh, until then, take care, everybody. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>